Hey church, welcome to an online worship service. This uh, past week, we ran into a few people uh, around and then at the men's event that, that all uh, had nice things to say about these online worship services that we've been putting together. And that really meant a lot to me because we put a lot of work into it. We love you. We look forward to everybody being back together when we can, when it's the right time. And in the meantime, we praise the Lord together in strength and in unity. The battle belongs to him. Let's sing about it. Here we go.
lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips? Ever be on my lips? 
Welcome to ABF, and thank you so much for joining us online. Well, I know the men had an awesome time last weekend. They filled the campus with the men's retreat. I heard it got a little bit competitive with all the basketball and wiffle ball and even some pickleball. And I know Scott had to work extra hard because you men sent in the toughest questions of 2020, and he had to tackle those with you guys. Well, thank you guys all for coming out and participating. And I know that was a huge encouragement to everybody that was able to attend. Well, one of the ways that we, our staff, likes to stay connected to you is through our text messaging. And so we just encourage you to text us at 97000, any of your prayer requests or anything that's going on in your life so that we can be connected with you throughout the week. Well, our next women's ministry gathering is our courtyard gathering on Monday, uh, November 2nd at 6.30 p.m. And this is just a great way for us to come together, dig into God's word, spend some time in prayer. And of course, we're gonna eat some yummy fall treats. Well, Awana has just been doing wonderful this year in our outdoor setting. We've got about 100 kids that are running around this campus and it's just awesome to see that. Well, Awana is um, beginning their annual food drive, and we'd love for the church family to join us in participating with that. So uh, we, just, we just are hoping that we can fill up the local food pantries. So if you want to participate, stop by the church with any non-perishable items, and you can drop them off between now and November 15th at the church office. Well, another way that we want to serve our community, community is by donating blood to the Red Cross. And we're going to be hosting a blood drive on November 15th on our ABF campus. So we'd love for you to mark that on your calendar and sign up online. Well, lastly, I just want to say thank you for your generosity and the way you've been supporting our church with your giving. Uh, easy ways to give is online or in person at the church. It's just been a blessing to see the ministries here continue and even around the world. Well, at this moment, I'd love just to take some time to pray with you before we launch into our message tonight. Father God, I just, I thank you so much for our church family. Um, I thank you so much for what you are doing in our midst and how you're growing us and challenging us through this season that we're enduring. Lord, I thank you that you're a sovereign God. You know what's before us, you know what's behind us, and you take care of all the details. And even as we're coming into this election season, Lord, you've got it all planned out and we can trust in you. We can trust and put our hope in you because you never fail us. Lord, I thank you for what you are doing in the midst of our communities, how you are using us and growing us. But mostly, Lord, we just thank you for who you are and your goodness, your faithfulness, and your patience towards us. We love you, and we're excited to see what you're going to teach us through this message. In Jesus Christ's most powerful name we pray, amen. Well, greetings, church. Uh, good to see you. Thank you, Adrian, for praying for us. Uh, so good to be together. And hey, I just wanted to pause before we start for a moment. And you might not know this. There's a guy behind the camera every single week. And did you say we're at 32 weeks in? 
32 weeks of doing this, uh, Michael Lubin, and I'm going to invite Michael to come up here just for a quick second, yeah? It happens to be his birthday, and so I just wanted to introduce him to everybody. He's the person that's been doing the film magic every single week, pulling this all together, so thank you very much. Happy birthday, my friend. Yeah, yeah. He uh, did not like the idea of doing that. Uh, I kind of forced that. But either way, uh, greetings again. Welcome to uh, the fifth chapter of John. I would love to have you turn with me uh, and join me in study in the study of God's Word. We're starting with verse number one uh, this week. And just going through this uh, story of the man at Bethesda uh, who was healed. And I'll tell you what, every single week, it is a legit adventure trying to identify what is the big theme, what's the big picture, where are we going with this passage and trying to piece it all together. And sometimes a given week, it'll be like Monday and I've got it already figured out, know where we're going, a general direction at least. And uh, this week it was at 10 a.m. today that it finally clicked the big idea because I kept wrestling all, all week. Well, what? why does he choose to spend so much time just focusing in on this one particular story at this pool of Bethesda. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized what was happening. The last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, Jesus was confronting the blatant abuse of the Passover celebration for financial gain. So he was turning over tables, he was fired up. And so last time he was confronting that, this time he's coming back to Jerusalem. So this is basically uh, the next time that it's mentioned of him being back in Jerusalem. And he's instead confronting religion itself. But he's doing it in a very creative manner in the a story of healing and rescuing a specific man. I want to be clear when I say religion, because some of us might say, wait a second, I, I'm a part of a religion. Let me be clear when I say confronting religion, what I mean. Religion is any humanly devised system of belief teaching that their rules justify themselves to God and gain eternal life. In other words, any man-made system that says, hey, if you follow this, this, and this, if you go through these steps, then you're going to be made right before God. He confronts that, recognizing the hopelessness of that effort. It's an important thing still today for us to confront because unfortunately, there's billions on our planet that are still clinging to religion as their means of rescue. So he confronts it then, we confront it still today, and we're excited to see what God's going to th do through the study of his word. Let me just pray for us before we explore this story. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time to be together, and I ask that you'd speak to us about this because it's such a prevalent issue in our world. So many people trying by human effort to gain your favor. God, we ask that you'd reveal that, you'd expose that. Man, our eyes fall on so many people in a given week that need this message, that need this truth. I ask that you'd do a work in us that we have a clear grasp on it so we have the ability to share it with others. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so chapter five, starting in verse one, just this very first uh, sentence kind of sets the stage. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be clear just to kind of catch us up where we're at. We're actually, when he says after this, that's describing a really an unspecified amount of time that he spent in his hometown of Galilee. 
Basically, all the other gospels kind of fill in some of the blanks of what happened during this time. Very extensive amount of teaching about the kingdom of heaven, healing of a demon-possessed man, healing of a paralytic, healing Peter's mother-in-law and a leper. All these things happened during this unspecified amount of time. But now Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem. And what I really wanted to point out about this observation of him coming to Jerusalem for this feast is that Jesus was careful to perfectly follow the Mosaic law. Anybody that reads scripture, they might get confused thinking because the religious leaders always gave them such a hard time about not obeying the law. It wasn't the Mosaic law that he wasn't obeying. It was their man-made add-ons that he intentionally resisted publicly resisted to, as, a, as a, a form of challenging the religious tradition that had somehow snuck in as an addition to what he had put in place. So that's what uh, I wanted to make sure we're clear on. He didn't skip any feasts, any festivals. He attended them, but consistently challenged man-made religion. Verse two, take a look at what he does there. It says, now there is in Jerusalem... By the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I want to pause there. So, let me outline a little bit of what's happening. First off, when the Bible describes a place, a historic site, the cool thing is in the really Old Testament and New Testament is the majority of the spaces that are talked about have since been uncovered. When I was there just a couple of years ago, and I believe when you guys were there, you got a chance to uh, visit the pool of Bethesda or really the, the remnants there. And uh, let me just be clear just in our explanation. When you come to mind, when you picture a pool that has a bunch of sunshades around it, this is nothing like that. This, this is not a, a luxury suite. Like if you think about this, if, uh, if there's any kind of a trip advisor, it would have been like a, a zero star place, like not the ideal. In fact, it was right next to what they called the, the sheep gate. The sheep gate was an entrance that basically any lambs that were being brought to slaughter were ushered in. And if they needed to be taken out into the fields to, to graze, they'd be taken out. So kind of like a, a stinky spot surrounding a pool and a, a group of people that had gathered together. So not exactly ideal location. Although if you think about it, it is kind of cool of the potential of the lamb of God having just entered through the sheep gate. But think about what's happening here in Bethesda, which means house of mercy. It says a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed were gathering there. Why is that? Why would they gather around this pool? You might not notice something at first in your uh, version of God's word in front of you, but the majority of you, if you're looking at uh, a newer version, NIV, ESV, wherever you're at, is that there's a certain verse that's missing there. Take a second to see if you see what's missing there. What verse number is missing there? Verse four seems to be missing. Dun, 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 dun. So let me explain why verse four is missing in your Bible. What happened is this verse was an explanation 
of what took place at the pool of Bethesda that's not included in early manuscripts, so it was taken out. Original text didn't include this. Most likely, the majority explain this is that it was added later on to help make sense of why these people were hanging out by the pool of Bethesda. I'll read to you what was inserted and then later removed. It says, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. So that's the explanation that isn't in the original manuscripts and didn't make it to the text that you're most likely looking about. Now, the debate about this is whether or not it was actually the Lord involved in doing this or whether or not it was just local superstition. Some might think, and there's a goes back and forth in this, some might think the reality that there was such a, a large crowd that had gathered there that something must have happened at some point. But then you stop and think about how many large crowds have been duped over history and misled. I would lean towards the idea of it being a superstition. If you think about it for a moment, there's no other example of angels involved in healing anywhere else in scripture. You also, this is found in the time period between the New Testament and Old Testament where God had been completely silent for hundreds of years. So not a, a would be kind of random and outside of the realm of that. It's also, if you think about it, not very consistent with God's character. You think about the setup or description of that, it's almost a little bit cruel if you think about it. If you aren't quick enough and able to outmaneuver other ailing people, blind included, you'll never get healed. Like, that's kind of a cruel joke. Like, unless you're quick on your feet, which that obviously wasn't an option for many, you weren't going to get healed. Kind of a pool of hopelessness, if that's the case. So instead, most would say that, well, I, would, I don't know if you'd say most, but I would say I would lean towards the idea that this isn't consistent with God's character. But instead, it's an example of the type of religion people still cling to today. The religion that I talk about is this. If you do this, then you'll experience rescue. In other words, God's rescue comes on the other side of some kind of performance by me. That's what, if you think about it, we see that all across the globe present day. If I pray three times a day facing Mecca as a Muslim, that's part of my rescue. If I spin a prayer wheel or fly a prayer flag as a Buddhist, that's my rescue as praying fervently to a saint as a Roman Catholic or going door to door as a Jehovah's Witness. All of these can become superstitious ideas as man-made way of being rescued. But the, it's insignificant for us to see there in the text that it says that this man had been an invalid for 38 years. In other words, clearly his time spent at the pool was not solving his problem, right? He's still that way after 38 years. So this superstitious belief system hadn't gotten what he was so desperate for, which was relief and rescue. But instead he was in the exact same place. So the question that you might ask, how did Jesus hone in on this one particular man to heal? 
We're told that there's a multitude of people. Why didn't he just rescue all of them? For those of us that suffer with ongoing whatever kind of pain or ailment, man, some of us recognize the, the desperation. We don't know because Jesus saw maybe the length of time that he'd endured this. If you're going through anything, man, this last couple of weeks, my, my dad actually fell playing pickleball uh, with uh, us out on the court and broke his femur. And just going through that with him, you see just, man, when there's an ailment, when there's something that restricts your mobility, man, it is difficult to deal with. He's healing up, praise the Lord. But in this, we wonder why he didn't choose to rescue all of them. And what I would suggest is this, we don't know. We don't exactly know why he doesn't come to the rescue of everyone. But what we do know about his character is that he uses good experiences and bad experiences to draw us to himself, also to shape our character and mold us. And since he's the one who knows all and sees all, we're turning over and trusting that he knows best with each personal plan that he's laid out in our life. It's kind of interesting when you think about what he does say to this man when he approaches him, what does he ask the question of? He says to him, do you want to be healed? To me, when I first think about that, like it seems like a pretty uh, obvious answer that you would get. Like, are, are you kidding me? I'm, I, I've been this way. You do see that I'm by this pool. You do recognize I've been this way for 38 years. Do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. But I think it's actually, when you actually stop and think about it, it's a fair question. Not everyone wants to get better. Sometimes somebody wants charity. Sometimes somebody wants empathy. Sometimes somebody wants sympathy. You might even say the same thing still today. Why does somebody come to church? If they come to church, they obviously want to change, right? They want something different, right? Not always the case, unfortunately. That's why it's important for us to understand that the want needs to precede the how-to, in other words, you have to want to change first before you can ever be introduced to the how-to. I end up in a number of different marriage counseling scenarios, and so often I'm brokenhearted because I might share something to the, the couple, and they might respond to that. Yeah, that's a great idea. We should totally do that in the conversation. And then you check back in with them months and months later, and they're not really doing any of that. That's so often what you need, why he checks first to make sure that the desire is there to change, to be healed, to be rescued before the actual rescue is put in place. Verse seven, let's see how he responds. It says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me. We'll stop there and we don't know exactly from those words. It wasn't necessarily a, a simple yes or no, uh, but basically he instead points to the hopelessness of his situation. He points out, he points out to that. He says, basically, no one's around to put me into the pool. And if I ever did have a shot, another always steps down before me. He was so focused on the obstacle that he didn't recognize that his rescue was standing right in front of him. How often is that true for us? So often the rescue is right there. God's saying, here, here's the solution. Just stay within the parameters of my word. Do this, take these steps, follow my wisdom. But instead, we keep on pointing to somebody else. 
playing the blame game. Look at what he does there. He's like, no one will put me in. And if I do go down, somebody goes before. So many people, that's their natural response is moving directly to the blame game, to the victim mentality. Victim mentality is so enticing. It releases somebody from personal responsibility for their actions. Jesus came to this man, as we see, he shows up. This man, it wasn't because of this man's extreme faith that he shows up. I don't see any evidence of that. There's no personal ownership of mistakes or sins that we're going to see later in the text. But instead, he meets him exactly where he's at with no prerequisites. No, hey, I've got this thing going. No, I've got it all together. Or no, I've been pleading for this for years. There's no sign of any of it. God shows up just where he's at, ready to rescue. Take a look how Jesus responds. Says Jesus, verse eight, said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So cool story. Sometimes healing happens when you think through an extended process, maybe through the hand of a doctor, medicine, rehab. But this was done in an instant. Jesus gave him three specific directions that would be impossible without divine involvement. One, get up. Two, take your bed. And three, walk. Basically, three specific commands. I love this, that he was powerless to do any of those things on his own. Principle for us that maybe some of us needed to hear uh, here today. Whatever he asks us to do, he gives us the power to do it. If he's asked you to do something, he's not depending on your strength. He's saying, I'm asking you to do it and I'm going to provide the strength to offer. And we're told at once he was healed. Do me a favor just for a moment. And as we're thinking through this process, just glance down at your two legs for a second and picture, maybe a picture that you have in your mind of some point where you've crossed paths with somebody that's been paralyzed. Think about the picture that you have in your mind of their legs, most likely absent of muscle, a lot of times even bent in or crooked, absent of, of, of any sort of ability to move. And think about what this would have been like for a moment. In the instant in which Jesus tells him this, we're told that in an instant he was rescued. He was healed. Imagine looking down at your legs and all of a sudden muscles coming from nowhere, tendons being attached, the the ligaments, the nerves being connected, all of that. And all of a sudden the ability for the mind to, to tell the legs what to do is all of a sudden instantly there. Balance given as a gift. All of that in an instant. That is what our God can do. An amazing picture of God demonstrating grace based on nothing that this man had done. And he tells him a couple things. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. The take up your bed might not seem like that big of a deal, but basically this is where I was pointing to earlier with the start of our text is what was he asking him to do? He was actually asking him to do something there that was in direct contradiction to a known man-made law. 
I don't know if you ever do this, those of you that are married, when you know something's gonna really agitate somebody and you choose to do it anyway. I've never done it before, but I hear of couples doing that sometimes where you know that by doing this next action, you know it's gonna stir the pot, that it's gonna get them fired up. Basically, that is what Jesus is doing knowingly by that directive saying, take up your mat. But it wasn't just trying to poke the bear. It was also an intentional thing. I think taking up your mat is critical in our story. Our mat is often our testimony. Our mat is what we've been through, our experience. It's looking back at where I've been. I used to be laying flat on my back on this stupid mat, and now I'm walking with it in my hand. That's the picture of a testimony. You can't ever have your mat taken away from you. But that's what he challenges or charges him to do, and he can't help but obey. We'll see how the religious leaders respond. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. All right, we'll stop there. Kind of a little bit of uh, craziness. First off, the Sabbath, just so we're clear on that, I've taught about that in the last uh, year. The Sabbath was intended to be a time for the body to rest and recover and for your spirit to be replenished and a chance to worship and reconnect with God. But what has happened there, what was intended to be just a pause from your normal work week was expanded on by human effort. Basically, the rabbinic tradition introduced 39 categories of restrictions on the Sabbath. So here's one category and all of the restrictions, 39 of those even the, w- determining how much something that you could carry was to weigh. So they had put in place all of these man-made things. And here's the thing to understand. The Bible tells people, uh, the, the, gives people principles, but then man carries out the methods. So was he actually asking him to break the Sabbath? No, that's not what was happening here. What he was confronting was the man-made methods of living out a principle, which is kind of a a messed up thing. I was like, oh, my heart for it was just to give people a break, a chance to catch their breath in the midst of the craziness. And they moved with that and ran with it and took it to some really extreme measures. Can you imagine being under unchecked leadership that imposes unrealistic expectations on its people, even during holidays. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine living in a system like that. But here, uh, I joke, uh, this system caused them, this level of confusion caused them to ask a recently healed paralytic, somebody that had had been unable to move, completely healed, restored 100%. Nobody would have questioned. This guy's been this way for 38 years. Everybody, I'm sure, knew this guy in a small area, caused him to be healed. And what's the first thing that these people are asking him? Are you kidding me? Why are you carrying your mat? That's what religion takes somebody to. 
religion, the obsession with following man-made rules can take us where we completely miss the rescuer and focus on the lawbreaker. Are you serious? You're gonna gonna bring up the law here when someone's been miraculously rescued? Why aren't they rushing to discover how in the world was this man that couldn't walk completely restored? What is this? And you think about it for a second, this idea for us still today, we can get so busy staring at somebody's mat that we forget where they've come from. So many times, even within the church, you're focused on some area that somebody still hasn't perfected instead of saying, but wait a second, don't forget where they've come from. Get your eyes off of their mat. Here's the idea though, is they confront him about it, the man that's been healed. And what does he do? He goes to his normal mode of operation, which was what? Blame others. Basically, it was not my fault that I was stuck on the mat. Nobody would help me. Remember that blame game? Now, it's not my fault that I got up. They did it. So he, he's blaming people from every side possible. Basically, the idea is he's playing the victim card and so so concerned with the lawbreaker that they miss the miracle worker. You know you're at a grumpy place in life when you're so entrenched in legalism that that's all that your eyes See, verse 14, basically this is how Jesus chooses to deal with it. Afterwards, Jesus found him, could have left him alone, found him, intentionally found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Basically, here's the idea. is just because you've been delivered doesn't mean it's an excuse to go back to your old ways. It's an invitation. You've been set free. We're invited to live in that freedom. Jesus intentionally seeks out this man. Make sure that he's clear. You've been set free. Make sure now that you live in that freedom, you don't go back. So he tells them, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Kind of an interesting statement if you think about that. Some sicknesses like this one that he had were directly related to deliberate disobedience. Still present today. It's a, it's a principle, it's a theme in the Old Testament and New Testament that God sometimes uses sickness and calamity in our life as a consequence of our actions, our choices. When he points to this, that's most likely the case. And most likely this guy doesn't really like that highlighted, right? Does anybody else like the idea of somebody pointing out your patterns of sin in your life? But he confronts it and look at his response. I find it interesting. Well, first you see that he, when he says the worst may happen to you, I, I was thinking about that this week and I was like, 38 years that you can't move? You're like, how much worse does that get? But really the reality is that eternity in hell separated from God is actually worse than that. So he's challenging him. He's pushing him. Live in the freedom that you've been given. And if you've been set free from something, Anything I've been delivered from, I don't want to go back sitting in it. Here, though, he challenges them. And in his response, it's interesting that in neither of these interactions with this gentleman, do you see any hint of gratitude? 
There's no thank you. There's no bowing before him. There's no jumping up and down and celebrating. No sign of him pointing to him as the, as the hero, as the rescuer. In the first round, he didn't even catch his name. He's like, I don't know who did it. Like, wouldn't that be some information you'd want to make sure you sought out? Instead, Jesus had to seek him out and introduce himself to him. How broken is that? And then take this a step further. What does it tell us that he, that he does? says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Like, how messed up is that? He had just rescued this guy and he basically turns him over to the Karens of that day. Like, are you kidding me? Like, says, all right, I know you're the, the police on the Sabbath. I'm gonna, I'm gonna point him out to them. It wasn't like he was confused as to whether or not they approved of his behavior. So basically, he rats out Jesus after he had been rescued. Kind of a, a sad picture where Jesus shows up as the rescuer, and that's where we're told here the persecution against Jesus began. The, the one that received rescue becomes the persecutor. That's where religion can take us. When you're so blinded by a human effort for rescue, you miss the Messiah that's standing right in front of you, literally speaking to you. My prayer and my hope as a church and as a community, that wouldn't be our story. That we wouldn't get so caught up with the, the do's, the don'ts, the lists, the parameters, the things that should, you should be doing, the things that you shouldn't be doing, what somebody tells you is part of being a, a Christian. I see how many times on the internet somebody says, that's not very Christian of you. If we get so caught up in that, we might accidentally miss the relationship that's right there in front of you. The hand that's been extended, the, the Messiah that says, I've come so that you can stand, so that you can take up your mat, so that you can walk in new life. My prayer is we'd be a church that embraces that, that lives that out in the day-to-day, -day, that embraces the idea I've been set free. There is no going back to that dirty, rotten mat on the ground. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and this picture of you confronting, kind of a strange way, but confronting, stirring the pot against man-made religion. God, I pray that we'd have that same sensitivity, that we would be able to sniff it out and recognize it around us because I'm convinced that believers can sneak back into religious living as well. You'd set us free from it and we'd remain free from it. We can only do that in the power of your name. We pray that in Jesus Christ, amen.
Thank you, Chad and Erica and worship team. We're so grateful for you leading us each week. I pray you have an amazing week, not getting sucked back into a religious way of living, but embracing and enjoying the walk that God's invite us to. God bless you. Have an amazing week.